Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon, good evening, my dear friends, fans, and colleagues. No matter where you are listening from or what time it is, uh, welcome back to my podcast, Voices of the Sacred Feminine. Uh, We are back on the air, streaming live at 11 a.m. Pacific Wednesdays or later from the archives for your convenience. Uh, We're now on Spotify, Amazon, Google Podcasts, and Apple. And uh, there are, are about 11 years of shows there in the archives, all still there and very relevant for your listening pleasure. Uh, And thanks to all of you who have been sending your thanks about the return of the podcast. And uh, I also want to give a shout out uh, to Abigail Spinner McBride, artist of the opening and closing music for the show, uh, entitled uh, Am Sepnet, Sa Sekim Sahu. So if you're new to the show, uh, I'm Karen Tate, and I'm the host here discussing sex, power, religion, politics, uh, with a broad spectrum of visionaries and forward thinkers, uh, women and men, from a sacred feminine or right brain point of view. Some call it the feminine consciousness or the shift away from patriarchal values to manifest a new and much-needed normal. Uh, These are issues that could raise your consciousness or save the world. Uh, It's all the stuff mom probably taught you to never discuss at the dinner table. Sex, religion, power, politics. But I say fear not. Open your mind to what the status quo, the patriarchy, considers forbidden fruit. Unlock your transformational toolkit and empower yourself as you learn long-hidden truths from your home altar to the voting booth. Learn what denying the feminine face of God, deity, archetype, or ideal, or feminine values in society has cost humanity, particularly women. And I hope you'll stay tuned uh, with us uh, after the interview. I have some other things to share. Um, But uh, today uh, we are talking to Stephen Gray. He is the editor of How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World uh, and also another book, Cannabis and Spirituality. And uh, he shares some of the wisdom from the contributors to the um, Psychedelics Can Help Save the World anthology, namely how wisdom of indigenous people and the power of psychedelics can help us enact the radical shift in consciousness necessary to navigate the collapse of the old world order and birth uh, a new consciousness centered on awakened heart interconnectedness. Um, I'm going to share a little bit about his bio 
and then we are going to jump right in. Uh, Stephen Gray, uh, well, he's a teacher and a writer on spiritual subjects and sacramental medicines. He's worked extensively with Tibetan Buddhism, the Native American Church, and with I'm having trouble getting the word out, Uh, ethnogenic medicines. He's also uh, a conference and workshop organizer, leader, and speaker. And as I said, he has edited this new book, How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World, also Cannabis and Spirituality, and uh, he lives in Vancouver, Canada. So, Stephen, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you. Happy to do this. So um, I do want to mention, uh, I know we talked about your speakerphone versus non-speakerphone. Uh, during mm-hmm. my intro, I could hear feedback um, and of my voice, actually. So if that continues, I might have to ask you to get off the speakerphone, okay? Well, why don't we do that right now? Okay, that, great. That better? Uh, uh, well, we'll see as we talk. Um, sure. So... Um, all right, so let's uh, let's jump right in. Um, the The book that we're talking about today, how psychedelics can help save the world. Um, you know, what what would you say the overarching message of the book is? Oh, sure. Uh, well, you kind of alluded to it in your introductory remarks. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, uh, the sort of shortest answer I can give to that. I know we have a lot to discuss today is that um, the contention is that we have reached a nexus point on this planet, a kind of a karmic uh, comeuppance moment or wall, so to speak, um, or as one of the contributors, uh, Chris Bache, put it, uh, on the edge of an abyss. Um, That sounds kind of dark, to put it that way, but the uh, point of doing a book like this altogether is to point out that Um, let's get realistic and um, understand, let's uh, grok, as it were, to the reality of what's happening is that, uh, and that is that, uh, excuse me, um, for a variety of reasons, not all readily accessible or understandable, uh, we have reached this point uh, with 8 billion people on the planet, we've kind of overrun it, etc., etc., but there's a lot more to that, and Again, the point of the book is that I think what's going to be happening, and this is not just me saying this by any stretch, uh, over the decades to come is that we're going to see increasing destabilization of material conditions on the planet. Um, the, um, The message about that is that it had to happen, and it has to happen, in the sense that you can't build a new reality um until there's a clearing out, so to speak, an emptying out, a change. And so uh, there's a lot of information uh, coming from a num- you know, quite a few different sources, uh, from the psychedelic psychonauts to you know, other types of mystics and intuitives and psychics, as it were, channelers, and uh, not least, the multiple... Um, prophecies and visions of indigenous peoples from around the world that extend back at least 500 years about this time being the time of great change. So with all that said, uh, obviously the word psychedelics is in the book, in the title I mean, and, uh, and so the point of, of that is that, uh, one way I like to say it is that 
when the patient is in an advanced state of illness, strong medicines are often required. And while this is another possible topic, they're not for everybody, of course. Uh, these are the strong medicines that may be essential for helping us make this transition, this transit. Okay, and I want to get into that a bit more, but I want to go back a bit before we go forward. Um, I mean, I'm old enough to remember, you know, Timothy Leary and, um, you know, how he was demonized and how, you know, psychedelics, you know, have been have been demonized over the decades. Mm-hmm. Um, why do you think that was, and uh, do you think uh, people have come around to realize that maybe that was an overreaction. Oh, yes, well, I would agree that it was an overreaction. Yeah, well, let me see if I can do my best to to, uh, to explain or to you know cover that one with some degree of accuracy. I think there were a couple of things going on that uh, that resulted in this, you know, what you might call a backlash. Um, <clears throat> one is. Uh, okay, so th- this is possibly the lesser uh, cause of that, and that is that uh, um, the, 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 these uh, drugs, if you will, were used sloppily a lot. Um, uh, this is one of the central issues of both this book and the whole sort of psychedelic renaissance altogether, is that uh, these medicines, these sacraments, are... Uh, uh, should ideally be used with great reverence, great respect, knowledge, preparation, intention. Uh, there's a common term, set and setting. Set meaning uh, the um, the intention and the preparation that you do, the attitude that you have, etc. Uh, approaching an encounter with one of these sacraments. And setting meaning the um, actual environment you do it in. And so those would be things like having a sitter, ideally, or a guide or a therapist or a um, safe container, like a ceremonial container. So, um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I kind of forgot what, what the question was about that. Oh, yeah. Well, why they well were you know, talk, about, talk um, about the backlash and, um, yes, you know, was exactly. it an overreaction? Yeah. Uh, I would say, well, well sure. I, I think overreaction is probably a correct term. Um, I would say it has to do with fear and control. You know, you mentioned in your in your intro that you know the problem with the patriarchy that's you know suppressed uh, many things and you know as you said in particular uh, women's rights, et cetera, et cetera. Um, so the um, the patriarchy, if you will, um, uh, is afraid of people and people's empowerment has been afraid of individual empowerment um the uh, i often refer to buddhist teachings because i find them particularly um brilliant in that regard not to you know elevate uh, any particular religion over another one but um so the core message perhaps you might say of, of uh, tibetan buddhism or buddhism is that we are naturally awake by nature we are in fact the word buddha just means awakened or awake so the Buddha was a, a person, not a not a god, um, who apparently uh, discovered his true nature. And um, what the psychedelics potentially did at their best uh, do, I mean, uh, and to some degree were doing that at the time. They were um, showing people some truths that were very uncomfortable about the sort of suppression of our true nature uh, back in the late 1960s. 
And uh, many in positions of power considered that a threat and were afraid by it and were afraid of it. And, uh, and that influenced uh, what I think at the time was called the silent majority as well. So they just shut everything down. I mean, it was, it was truly an overreaction. Cannabis being, uh, you know, exemplary of that. Um, uh, for those people who are not familiar with it, in the United States you have the Controlled Substances Act with um, uh, Schedule 1, 2, 3, and so on. Schedule 1 is the most severe uh, shutdown <laughs> category, uh, which claims uh, um, no medical value and significant potential for abuse. Cannabis is in Schedule 1. I mean, it's absurd, really, you know. Um, it's, it's a complete misunderstanding of what these medicines are capable of, but it's, it's a fear of chaos, a fear of, you know, things getting out of control and that sort of thing. Okay, so let me um, a couple things you said I want to uh, I want to touch on. First, um, describe what you you believe uh, you know what Tibetan Buddhism uh, you know considers our true nature. And um, secondly, for say a conservative who is listening to this. Um, they mm-hmm. probably imagine um, they would probably say number one, well, how would you how do you control people to do this properly uh, using set and setting? I believe was the term you used. Mm-hmm. And yeah. uh, and secondly, uh, do you you know I think they would worry that we uh, that you're talking about having a stoned society. Um, so can I <laughs> throw those three at you? Oh boy, see if I can work my way through all that. Um, well, oh gosh, I don't even know where to start. So on the notion of stone society, I would offer that it's actually the other way around um, uh, if you want to take a broader definition of the word stone. And this would be, uh, coming back to your reference to Buddhist teachings, um, what basically what, um, what Buddhist, and not just by any stretch Buddhist uh, teachings uh, would say, is that... Um, Pretty much all of us are um, uh, significantly shut down from knowing who we are. Um, we cover over our true nature, and I'll try to explain what I think the true nature is, and it's not what I think. It's just what's, what's taught, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. In any case, um, our, uh, the, uh, we cover over this true nature with an uh, um, overlapping uh, collection of stories, of concepts and beliefs, um, et cetera, et cetera, that tell us that by which we tell ourselves what we think life is about, what we think is reality. But think is the key word. It's all in our heads. It's all in this collection of stories and beliefs and concepts that tell us what we think is true and untrue, real and unreal, um, uh, you know, uh, doable and undoable, uh, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so they don't exist other than as a collection of thoughts. Um, however, underneath all that, uh, this is the great teaching, as it were, um, it, there is uh, an awakened being. And you ask what I understand that to be and you know I wouldn't say that my understanding is complete I don't identify as an enlightened person and I would be a little suspicious of most people who do actually um, nonetheless um, uh, let's say I've had glimpses uh, of it and studied and practiced for many many years 
And as I understand it, uh, so there's a word in, um, there's a Sanskrit word that's used in Buddhist teachings, bodhicitta. Um, uh, so bodhi means uh, um, awake, and uh, citta means both mind and heart together. Uh, they're the same thing in that sense, um, uh, head and heart, as it were. And that, uh, so it's a state of, uh, well, actually, I, I think if it actually does in fact come from Jesus. I, I've always loved to stay the same. The peace that passes all understanding. Once we are able to um, uh, open up through, surrender from, uh, heal our wounds, as it were, etc., etc., once, as we do that, we increasingly um, relax into our true nature which ultimately, as I understand it, is a state of the peace that passes all understanding. And so uh, bodhicitta, meaning uh, mind and heart, is also referred to as awakened heart. So our natural state, our true state, our unconditioned state, is one of peace and compassion and great intelligence because it's not um, uh, obscured or confused or distorted by... uh, beliefs that exist only in our minds. Interesting. Um, actually, uh, that's uh, that's pretty cool, you know, and, and you made me think of children. You know, children, you know, they're kind of a blank, blank slate. Uh, oftentimes, you know, you hear that they remember past lives, they see, um, mm-hmm. you know, maybe into other dimensions, things like that, mm-hmm. until parents get hold of them. Uh, or religion gets hold of them, or uh, whatever, school, whatever influence, and then suddenly, uh, you know, they uh, are morphed into whatever outside influences uh, shape them. Um, so I, I get uh, I get where you're where you're coming from um, as to true nature, um, but but how do you think we would achieve? Um, you know, the ability to instill in people this idea of set and setting. Because, you know, um, you know, especially in the beginning, you know, uh, as the transition happens, you know, people abuse um, substances. Um, uh, you know, you think about kids when they first hit college, stuff like that. They go crazy in fraternities and uh, all mm-hmm. of that sort of stuff. Um, uh, or, or would that just be um, growing pains that we would have to endure until people matured into it? Yeah, that's a difficult uh, question in a sense. So one one <clears throat> one idea, sort of a slightly oblique way of coming at this, but a, hopefully you know pr- uh, relevant, um, uh, is this or way of looking at it? Uh, this is. Uh, uh, <clears throat> I'm not a scholar of Asian spirituality and history per se, but as I understand it, certainly from the Tibetan Buddhist teachings that I encountered over a couple of decades, but also I believe it's uh, an embed, embedded in the philosophy of some of the uh, martial arts of Asia and so on, is that you work with the energies that exist, right? So this is <clears throat> my particular Buddhist teacher was really big on this. It's like, um, don't, uh, don't just fight against you know the energies that you're coming against, right? Or you're coming, you know, in in in, in encountering. Um, don't just fight against them and sort of like, you know, beat them to death, as it were. Uh, meet those energies where they were, 
understand them, accept them, and then learn to transmute them. So uh, in terms of set and setting, I think the idea is uh, just, you know, sharing information like this, that uh, when it comes to the use of psychedelics, I mean, let's be honest about this. You can, many people can, and of course do use psychedelics without much attention to set and setting. That is often fine. Uh, Sometimes they surprise themselves and have unexpected realizations. However, uh, there are dangers, distinct dangers with doing that. Um, And at the very least, uh, not doing, say, uh, psilocybin mushrooms or whatever um, in a controlled setting um, uh, is likely to significantly mitigate or limit the potential of what you can learn from these substances. So essentially what you can learn in the most simplistic terms is, I like to say, two kind of overlapping functions. One is that they function, they open up channels in the brain that allow you to see things a lot clearer. So you see truths about yourself and your situation. And in a larger sense, they open up that true nature uh, capability in the brain, uh, potentially, of course, um, and allow you to realize that you are embedded in an interwoven, living, intelligent cosmos. And would you say uh, also that, you know, maybe it would enable people to see their conditioning more clearly you know the the people or institutions that have tried to control them you know putting their tentacles uh you know to control their life and their beliefs and their actions in the world oh absolutely yeah that's what i was referring to earlier when you asked me about the backlash issue and i think um the 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 sort of the powers of the status quo uh kind of intuitively recognized that, uh, that there was a threat to that because of this, um, you know, well, my old Buddhist teacher called it uh, mutual group imprisonment. You know, you, uh, you, you made a reference to, you know, the sort of innocence and so on or purity of, uh, of babies and young children coming in. Um, but we're all, this is, this is key actually, um, all to one degree or another, um, we are afraid of the awakened state because it, it, it it shows us the, um, uh, if you truly, my old Buddhist teacher said that enlightenment, as it were, is a constant irritation to this um, egoic state that we live in, the uh, confused state of the um, ego-dominated. And when I say ego, I don't mean like big ego. I mean the sense that we are separate from everything and we live in a world where we have to constantly protect ourselves and fight for survival and you know, every man or woman for themselves kind of attitude and all that. That That is, um, <clears throat> you know, ego in Buddhist terms is associated or is synonymous with struggle. And um, it's, uh, it, it, when, you, when you, not just from taking psychedelics, but, but psychedelics, including cannabis, by the way, um, tend to shine a light on, on that stuff. Um, and that's uh, threatening to the powers that be, but it's also threatening to many of us individually because we have got so much stake in this identity that we've built up. It's our, it's our vehicle. It's our, our safety. Our, you know, and, I, and I'm not judging that. We all do it. I, I did it. Everybody did it to one degree or another. 
was over the course of our lifetime, we figured out how to survive this sort of mutual group imprisonment thing, you know, and so we've developed a, what, you know, some psychologists like uh, Freud's student Otto Wong called a live personality, or others have called the uh, false or provisional personality. It's functional to a degree for most of us, not functional for everybody, of course, because some people just can't pull it off. Um, but um, but it's ultimately extremely limiting. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll stop there for yeah. a second for the moment. Okay, well, you know, and, and this is just kind of a parallel comment. Um, you're reminding me of an article I read recently about why conservatives have the views they have about government and social safety nets. And the short story of, of the article was um, – uh, you know, billionaires, um, you know, after World War II, billionaires felt like the middle class had uh, too much freedom. Uh, they were doing too well financially, and that scared them. Uh, they felt like they had too much leisure time, and so they uh-huh. wanted to change things. Because, And I'm thinking about your phrase, you know, um, our mutual, uh, we, our agreed to mutual prison, however that phrase was. And, mutual um, group imprisonment. Mutual group imprisonment. So I'm thinking, you know, the way, uh, you know, people fight against the social safety net to give people some modicum of security uh-huh. um, and, you know, or, the, you know, to raise the minimum wage so people don't have to work three jobs. That article made a lot of sense because as long as people are struggling, as long as people, you know, have to work three jobs to be able to pay the rent and put food on their table, uh-huh. then they don't have yeah. time to expand their awareness like we're talking about they don't have time uh-huh. to fight back against the status quo or the patriarchy so while we're imprisoned um you know they get to go do whatever they want because we're just struggling to make it from day to day Hmm. so is there a particular question you want to throw at me no 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 it was just a comment it was just a comment that i oh, felt okay. it runs parallel to the mutual imprisonment thing uh uh-huh, and you yeah. know it, it, and kind of the attitude of conservatism um you yes. know they're they have there's such fear you know there's there's such fear they don't want people mm-hmm. to have this raised awareness they don't want people to uh i think find their authentic or true nature uh because mm-hmm. you know maybe it would mean that um uh you know would tear it all down and want to start over again you know and they like mm-hmm. it the way it is they, they they're the ones benefiting right. so yes indeed yeah. but you know it depends on what in conservatives you're talking about because you know, there are those with the, this power. But you know what? Um, I mean, this this is a complicated topic, and I don't know that anyone can nail it down easily. But I suspect that, um, you know, if you were really able to uh, study all these uh, of the super rich, you know, they're not necessarily the happiest people around. Yes, of course, they have all the toys. But this is where the great illusion comes in, in a sense, uh, that... Uh, that material things and security that way and like having all these protections around you actually free you. And I don't think they do for the most part. Uh, you know, I don't think so. Um, and, and it seems to be evident when you, you know, you hear things come out of the mouths of some of these kinds of people too. I think, I think they are as um, limited, if not more so than many of the rest of us um, because 
Well, let's see. Uh, you know, <clears throat> I think it's observable to see, or, you know, we've seen over the course of um, the time, you know, in our lives that uh, sometimes when people lose, people who had an immense amount of money, like, I don't know, $20 billion or something, and they lose half of it or three quarters of it in a, 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 a depression or reset, uh, recession, um, and they freak out or jump off bridges or whatever, you know, or um, that kind of thing. And yet they're still like a thousand times richer than most people. Um, so it's actually an addiction. It's uh, it yeah. can easily, can, It often is an addiction and it's not particular. It doesn't generate peace particularly, I don't think. Right. Um, so it doesn't really serve anyone that, that so many people have. Uh, you know, the small cadre of human beings have this immense portion of the wealth on the planet. I don't. It doesn't. I don't think it really serves them either. It's. It is part of ego's illusion, thinking that you can build this fortress around you. Yeah. Well, I agree with you. I mean, I, I knew a rich man for quite a long time, and uh, he spent most of his time. Uh, worrying about how to keep it, how to get more, and who was trying to steal yeah. it from him. And, yeah. um, you know, his quality of life really sucked. And, um, I, you know, I, and I feel like some of these people must lay in bed at night in the dark with this hole inside of them trying to fill it, you know, with more things. Um, uh-huh. And to your point about addiction, I do think, I, I think great, uh, greed is probably, I would like it to be uh, categorized as a um, mental health problem. <laughs> you know, I think no, we have I to agree. get to the it's point a... where it's considered taboo, you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Um, It is a misunderstanding of who we are. You know, we're all in the same boat on one level. We're all, we all are dealing with our um, sort of uh, core confusion. That's, 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 again, central to teachings like those from Buddhism. Uh, They use the word samsara, which is the mind of confusion. And, and out of that, we try to build, we try to build these fortresses. My old teacher called it a cocoon, you know, the problem with the cocoon is that it's, um, it's, it's not uh, permanent and it's constantly breaking down. And so you constantly have to patch it up, you know? So that's why I said that ego is uh, a synonym for struggle and so, um, uh, yeah, that's that's the great conundrum or the great problem, and that and that uh, we need uh, going forward for the generations to come to uh, to understand about ourselves and learn how to release out of it. You know, there's a word, simple little five-letter word. It's trust. Um, <clears throat> We have, um, you could argue that the, the, the grand or great majority of us have misplaced our trust. We have placed it in filling and protecting ourselves somehow uh, uh, because we're afraid of the annihilation of this, you know, again, identity that we have, or the non-existence. That's another Buddhist teaching. The self, that self doesn't exist. As I said earlier, it only exists in thought, in our minds, in these concepts and beliefs and so on. Um, We think that if we let go of that, disaster will befall us. I understand that. I understand it from my own journey and my own life. Um, But trust is the the, the key word there in a sense, is that um, one way that you could describe the um, spiritual path, you might say, from beginning to end, beginning to fruition or completion or whatever is that at the beginning 
or maybe even before the beginning, so to speak, um, all of our uh, trust, as it were, or um, we're relying solely on this collection of beliefs that we have that, you know, we need to keep ourselves safe and we're separate and all those kinds of things. And then as you start to learn or awaken or open on the spiritual path, gradually, almost in every single case, I think it's rare that somebody would have an enlightenment experience and not still have to go back to the daily walk and work through those issues that they have you know, piled up over the course of their lives. But so almost always very, very gradually, ideally on the path, one is learning to relax and trust our true nature, or what they call the awakened state, that there is a flow and a kind of a pattern of things that we can relax into. And, and yes, it takes us beyond and out of this little ego that we have created, this little identity that we have created. But in fact, it is safe. In fact, I have a book where the guy says, go beyond reason to love. It's safe. It's the only safety. Like trusting that flow of energy, which is love, which is intelligence, which is creativity, um, and that we actually become much more skillful, much happier, much more at peace. And uh, since you know you are talking to me because of this book, I'd like to put in a word for the psychedelics again on that. I mentioned this notion of you know strong medicine for severe illness or advanced illness. What the psychedelics again potentially do is they unlock those channels. Um, uh, Aldous Huxley wrote a book way back in the 50s called The Doors of Perception. He said that you know our normal waking consciousness is like a, a, a faucet that's turned down to where there's just a few little drips coming open or coming through. And when you take a psychedelic, again, potentially in the right kind of set and setting and so on, um, you are opening up that faucet. Mind at large, I think he called it, opens us up. And they're only visits, you know, so they don't, they don't, you can't, you know, you don't go in and dwell in those states. You go in and, you know, the novelist uh, Tom Robbins once said, uh, uh, sort of after his, um, his main period of working with psychedelics when he was younger, somebody asked him in an interview, do you still take LSD? And he says, yeah, once a year for a reality check, you know? So <laughs> you, 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 you go into these states, they do open up, uh, uh, you know, neurotransmitter uh, activity in the brain that opens us up to this true nature, which has been closed down or limited uh, potentially again, um, and show us these truths, and then we have to go back and um, work them out, as it were, and walk the walk through our lives. Yeah, in, in our everyday life. Um, well, Stephen, yeah. we're going to take a break here, uh, but when we come back, um, I want to know more about uh, what a mature planetary civilization looks like. Uh, I also want to talk to you about uh, how women's voices are central uh, you know, to the vision for a healed humanity, and we'll get into you know some of the other stuff about the about the great medicines. Uh, but sure. uh, first, uh, here's a word from Joe Carson for listeners. Sure. This is from Jonathan Nightshade, a Gardnerian high priest of the Whitecroft line, a traditional craft practitioner and researcher, writing about Joe Carson's book Celebrate Wildness. Magic, Mirth, and Love on the Feriferia Path. I love this book, how special this work is, and how appreciated. As someone who was young in the 1970s 
and through the years only found snippets of information on Feriferia, one of the first modern pagan paths, this book comes as an artistic revelation of the core practices of the way of the goddess and gods reborn for the next age of the Divine Maiden. She has clearly introduced the historical background, philosophy and ritual practices of the joyous wilderness mysteries of the fairy faith, illuminated by the marvelous pagan art of Feriferia's founder, Fred Adams. I was very pleased that the high-quality production of this oversized volume makes it a collectible work of art, as well as a testament to the visionary philosophy of Fred Adams. I feel blessed that I received a copy. I will treasure it and look forward to the next book for more of the deep philosophy and ritual practice of Feriferia. Celebrate Wildness is a dense, art book quality hardcover book. You can get it for just $45 from the Feriferia website at feriferia.org. That's F-E-R-A-F-E-R-I-A dot org. And please don't forget about the Divine Feminine app. Uh, I've mentioned it uh, for the last few shows, uh, but I want to mention it again in case this is the first time you're tuning in. Uh, Women have been finding the Divine Feminine app each and every day uh, since 2016, and it's a resource for finding local sacred circles, events, and resources. Uh, The Divine Feminine app has a new feature where newly added and local events are sent out every Tuesday. Uh, You can go to the Divine Feminine app and register quickly, easily, and at no cost to see the circles in your area and to be put on the email list. And as a benefit to our listeners, you can click on Upgrade Membership and scroll down uh, to use the code Sacred Feminine to get 90-day access to entering your own featured events that will be sent to local users. And it's not just local events, but other soul-filled Sacred Feminine virtual and online events are also listed there. as well as retreats, profiles, and podcasts like ours and more. So it's the Divine Feminine app. Uh, You'll want to check it out. And uh, if you're tuning in late, uh, I am talking to Stephen Gray, editor of How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World. Uh, You'll want to go back to the beginning and restart this, but uh, uh, we're jumping back in here. And um, so, Stephen, let's start with um, how you believe women's voices are central uh, to the vision for a healed humanity. Sure. Well, I imagine, Karen, you understand that issue as well, if not better than I do. And I sometimes feel slightly embarrassed as a man talking about that. But nonetheless, I have been tuned into that issue for quite a long time, and I'll do my best. Um, So uh, this ego issue that we've been discussing, um, this sense of um, uh, this illusion as great teachings like Buddhism would Buddhism would put it, of a separate self that's constantly struggling for survival and trying to cope and you know advance itself and protect itself and all that sort of thing. Um, uh, that for and you know I mean it's complicated you know how all that happened. It hasn't been universal that that there hasn't always been patriarchy dominating every single culture of the planet. However, it has tended that way for a whole bunch of complicated reasons that are very much connected to this notion of ego. So the thing about ego is um, uh, the, the ego in this sense, in the psychological, spiritual sense of ego, 
is that um, we are always trying to control our world. So we're trying to control ourselves and we're trying to control others uh, to make ourselves feel safe. And this notion that I mentioned earlier in the conversation of mutual group imprisonment. So um, men, for you know, whatever reasons that you, know, you and many listeners would know at least as well as I do, I'm sure, perhaps because we've been bigger and stronger, you know, perhaps because um, the women have been uh, more tied to the home and the hearth because they're giving birth to the children and so on and so on. Um, uh, the men uh, have taken advantage of this, of the power. You know, historically, and then the ones that really go for it, you know, the ones that want to control, it's kind of like how, you know, how big are your horizons, right? You know, like the old Tears for Fears song, everybody wants to rule the world. Well, many of us don't feel capable of ruling more than our own personal world, um, you know, controlling input and output. Uh, some of us um, who are perhaps even more disturbed, who knows, or maybe they just have the chops and the talent, want to control the whole world in a sense, you know, the, the, the tyrant, the great tyrants of the world or whatever. Uh, and so, um, uh, I, the way I see, uh, the sacred feminine aspect of this, uh, see if I can do this some justice is that, um, the qualities that are repressed in ourselves are, um, uh, also qualities that are, associated with women oftentimes, which is um, uh, nurturing, you know, caring, um, intuition, feeling, things like that. And so the men have tried to, in a sense, push that, you know, this is a gross generalization, of course, but men have tried to push those qualities or those aspects of themselves aside because they're a threat to the control, their own control, which we project outward and try again to, as I say, to control others and the world in any way we can. Um, and so uh, those qualities, those um, earth-connected, blood-connected, um, you know, life-giving connected, nurturing qualities, um, vulnerable qualities, tender qualities, all that aspect of things, not to mention visionary qualities of the sacred feminine or the feminine altogether, um, have been on some level, I think, a threat to ego's ability to control its world. Um, and yeah, so, and they are now necessary, of course, because those, some of those qualities, as I say, you know, like heart connectedness, intuition, uh, nurturing abilities, uh, connected through blood, etc., to the earth and to life giving, they're all the kinds of qualities that we need, um, you know, in the archetypal form, of course, you know, every woman is different, just like every man is different. And of course, women have generally been conditioned in the same ways that men have in this in these cultures, you know, in the in the egoic sense of thinking of ourselves separate and involved in the struggle and all that kind of thing. Um, but the women's voices need to be heard now. It's as simple as that. Good job, Stephen. And um, you, <laughs> uh, you you did that wonderfully. And it is important uh, for, I think, other men and even women to hear this from a man. You know, we can talk till we're blue in the face, but uh, sometimes I think uh, when men hear it from another man, it makes a difference. And uh, I think it helps us women to know that men, uh, men like you get it. So thank you for uh, yeah. thank you for that. So um, sure. Well, so can I can this... I just add a little bit to that? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Sure. 
men are afraid of their vulnerability. I mean, everybody is to some degree, I guess, you know. But men are afraid of of the more fragile aspects of their, our nature because it's a threat to this control. I just want to add that little bit in there, you know, like, you know how men were, you know, like don't, you know, men weren't supposed to cry or whatever, you know, because mm-hmm. it makes you, now you think you're weak or you think other people will think you're weak. Oh yeah, because it's a struggle, you know, because it's like, you know, every ape for himself trying to, trying to reach for the top, you know, and oh, there's a weak one over here, you know, kill him, you know, nice guys finish yeah. last, all that kind of stuff, right? Um, but what we don't realize is that we're protecting our, our humanity. I mean, we're blocking it. We're shutting it down. Um, our, um, our love, our compassion, you know, our tenderness, our connection, you know. Like women often yeah. have, um, have historically been the ones connected to the plant world, right? You know, and then, mm-hmm. you know, I'll just say this one last example. Uh, if, you know, if I can squeeze in another one here, you know, the whole persecution of the so-called witches in the medieval era, like the 14th century in that time. Um, these were the medicine women of the village more than, you know, there may have been a few rogue souls, you know, that were, you know, dancing with the devil. But for the most part, these were the medicine women. These were the herbalists. These were the people that knew the plants. They knew what they could do. They knew which ones could be used for medicine. They knew which ones could be used for vision. These were, this is the very central issue in that sense. These women, I'm generalizing, of course, I wasn't there, but, you know, I've read about it and so on. Um, These were the people that were exemplifying individual or collective or neighborhood or village empowerment and, you know, ability to heal themselves and all that. And it was considered by the powers that be, primarily the church hierarchy, but also, you know, with the complicity of secular authorities, a threat. And so they demonized them. Yeah. You know, it was all it was all BS, but they demonized them. Anyway, that's I just wanted right. to go on that little rant. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, that's okay. I mean, it's all true. You've had a good teacher. Um, well, and just uh, to speak to vulnerability for just a, a minute here, um, I think uh, that's, that's really an, an important issue that we're afraid, especially men, to look at our vulnerability. And I didn't think about it much before my husband fell and hit his head and had a brain injury. Mm-hmm. But I noticed mm-hmm. that uh, people... Uh, avoid him Uh, and he's by no means a vegetable Mm -hmm. but um, he's Mm -hmm. different you know Um, he's 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 gentle and you and he is vulnerable and you can sense that energy and I think it really does make people uncomfortable because uh, maybe it scares them that they could potentially be vulnerable you know Um, and yeah, and that they don't allow their empathy or their compassion to come out. Mm-hmm. Instead, they, they want to shun. And, um, you know, I look at people who are disabled, who, who they, I mean, you can't see my husband's disability. You know, mm-hmm. uh, you, it, mm-hmm. you have to wait until he speaks. But I think about mm-hmm. people who you can see their disabilities and how they're really shunned in society. And um, mm-hmm. I thank you for that observation that the reason people do that is because uh, they're afraid of uh, feeling their own vulnerability. Um, I, I didn't realize mm-hmm. that. Um, you know, maybe that's why people shun my husband uh but um mm-hmm. thank you thank you for that uh insight um sure but um so so uh but let's get on to some of the great medicines um and mm-hmm. how maybe they've been and can still 
uh, be used effectively, and maybe that ties into what the mature planetary civilization looks like. Okay. Uh, you want me to speak about some of the specific medicines in, involved in this? Sure. In this work? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay. yeah, maybe, uh, oh. you know, ones in the past or, you know, because, I mean, look, like at Eleusis, we believe that they were probably taking sacred mushrooms to be able to see Demeter and, or Persephone rise from the um, uh-huh. underworld, yeah. you know. Um, but but y- this is your show. You talk about mm. psychedelics. Sure. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, I, I, it's neat that you you, uh, you mentioned Eleusis. Um, we could spend half an hour just talking about that situation. Um, I'll try to squeeze it down to 47 and a half words or something but uh, um, it, you know basically it, it was in ancient Greece um, and it existed for close to 2,000 years which is amazing when you think of it you know most empires only last you know three or four hundred years um, and it was <clears throat> Uh, it was an annual rite. I believe it lasted a couple of weeks. Uh, all the, I think, you know, pretty much all of the great minds of Athens, the Plato's, the Socrates, the Aristotle's, all these people all went there. There was indeed some kind of psychedelic sacrament involved. They don't know exactly what. That's one of the issues of investigation and discussion, you know, in the field, as it were. But they do, they're, they're pretty convinced uh, through the, what's shown on the pottery record and all that kind of stuff. And I think there is some extant writing, believe it or not, relative to the time, relevant to the time, you know, ancient writing, I mean. Um, uh, and, and, and so, actually, uh, we don't know what it was, but it informed the minds and the thinking of the founders of Western thought to a large degree, you know, the Greek philosophers and so on. So that's pretty interesting in itself. Um, yeah, well, in a sense... They're all meant to do all these substances, you know, so we're talking like, say, ayahuasca, psilocybin mushrooms, LSD even, which is, you know, you might call it a drug, but it's only semi-synthetic. It's sourced in, um, in uh, ergot um, from rye originally. It's, so it's plant-based originally. And even MDMA is, it comes from the sassafras uh, family or sassafras, sassafras root. Um, peyote. The cactus, you know, um, Huachuma, also a.k.a. San Pedro cactus, which is the same active ingredient as, um, uh, as uh, the peyote cactus does. Um, uh, and then some of these more concentrated ones like DMT, 5-MeO-DMT, they, they have their differences, but essentially they're all trying ultimately, I think, to do the same thing, that I think we've been talking about to some degree, which is to loosen up the bounds of this uh, of this um, uh, ego, this sense of a struggle or the tighter self that uh, you know that we've been talking about during this conversation to, to show us truths, unconditional truths, not new philosophies that are just like yet another you know view of the world, but the real world. And this is what indigenous people have been. Indigenous medicine people have been telling us for a long time, which is that these states that you can get into, they're not hallucinogen states. They're real states. Um, uh, They're just other than the states that we're normally in. And again, when they're used properly and understood properly in the right hands by the right people, etc., etc., they have this potential to show us that... um, aspects of that unconditional reality, including what you mentioned earlier, uh, Karen, our conditioning, you know, that we see 
how we've been conditioned to be shrunken into the cocoon, as it were. Um, so, you know, ayahuasca, for example, it's um, it's an interesting one. Uh, it's been all over the, uh, the upper Amazon for, uh, you know, they don't know how long the Spanish in, in, uh, found people using it when they first got there, way back in the, whenever that was, the 1600s or, you know, 1500s maybe even, you know, the they were recording things, these uh, Spanish uh, friars and whatnot were writing things down, and the only people are using this medicine. Well, they considered it, you know, devil's work, of course, but um, it's an interesting one because it's two, sometimes with other admixtures, but it's a minimum of two separate plants that neither do anything orally by themselves, or not much anyway. One is um, a climbing vine known as Banisteriopsis capi, and the other one is a, uh, a DMT, dimethyltryptamine-containing plant. There's lots of plants have some DMT in them. The main one uh, is uh, called Chacruna, sometimes also known as Cicotria viridis. And um, the really interesting thing about ayahuasca, chemically speaking, is that um, the the, 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 the powerful one is the DMT-containing containing plant, but uh, it's orally inactive because of something in our stomachs called uh, MAO. But what's really interesting is that the vine, in com- you know, taken together in a brew, uh, deactivates the MAO that shuts down the effects of the DMT, allowing it to go to work and do its work, as it were. Um, and uh, people all over the Amazon historically have found this, many of them apparently never having had any contact with each other. What of all the millions of plants <clears throat> and plant combinations that you could have in the, in this you know, massive thing called the uh, Amazon jungle, um, they found these two plants in combination. So, you know, one thing that you might speculate about that is that why is that the case? You know, like uh, there are... There are, there are visionaries and philosophers and spokespeople in the psychedelic realm who say that this is not just random coincidence, that these plants are here to help us, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, you, and and you, you could even say that about LSD. I mean, the story of the, of the discovery uh, of LSD is, uh, I find, very fascinating. Um, <clears throat> Dr. Albert Hoffman was a chemist working for Sandoz uh, Laboratories in Switzerland, and they asked him to find a, to explore and try to find a medicine for some particular purpose, and he started working with iterations of this ergot source, uh, you know, substance, um, and he kept doing it and doing it and doing it. He ended up at 25 iterations and never found one that, uh, that did what they wanted him to do or to find, right? So he put it on a shelf. Um, and the normal procedure for that is that <clears throat> they wouldn't ever bring something like that out again. But five years later, he had an intuition like that called him to come back to this thing. That would, was un, 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 unheard of, you know, in that kind of practice. And he pulled it out again, and he accidentally got some on his finger, um, which gave him this altered experience, and then deliberately took what he thought was a tiny amount, which turns out with LSD to be a massive amount, and had a very powerful altering experience. And so there was just, he himself said, you know, there's just this whole uncanny kind of process about why would this medicine come back in in that way um, when it should never have happened. Um, so, so all these medicines, you might say, 
um, are here to help us wake up. That's what I'd like to believe. I can't prove it, of course, but I'd like to believe that they too understand that we have lost our way largely and we come to a point where we can't keep going uh, in, the, in this sort of um, illusion where we, keep, where we think we are separate from everything and therefore we don't understand our embedded relationship and therefore we don't treat the planet in a sustainable way and we don't treat ourselves necessarily in a sustainable way and each other, etc., etc., so um, I would like to believe, and I'm far from alone in this, I think, that these plants are here to help us wake up strong medicine for severe conditions kind of idea that I mentioned before. Okay. So that's, um, just, well, that's just Stephen, a couple of them. I mean, there are more. <laughs> anyway, carry so, on. Um, I, I just want to ask you, can you give us – I know we said we'd talk about talk – about, uh, for maybe uh, about an hour. Can you give us maybe yeah. about five or ten more minutes? Oh, yeah, no problem, as long as you need. Okay. <clears throat> Okay, so um, so in the in the tail end of your last answer, were you starting uh-huh. to describe what the mature planetary civilization might look like uh, if these psychedelics became more commonplace? Mm, yeah, well, there's a chapter in in the book that you may have come across. Uh, where that author refers to that. Uh, his name is Dwayne Elgin, and he has a wonderful book called Choosing Earth. Um, and in his chapter, and in the book, the, the chapter uh, is sort of more or less taken from ideas in the book and, and sort of condensed down to something fairly succinct in about 10 pages. Um, he says the same thing that uh, other visionaries like Chris Bache, who has the first chapter for a particular reason uh, about the birth of the future human, uh, are saying it's just that this hundreds of thousands of years of development, karma, etc., etc., have now come to a head. We are now, as a species, as a planet, entering what um, the visionaries are telling us is what they would call a death and rebirth cycle, where we have to... Um, change where we have to let go of these illusions and we have to wake up to this true nature that we were, have been talking about and so what Duane envisions is um, and he actually in the book he goes through decade by decade what he thinks is a probable or likely scenario for for each of those decades is that over the next several decades several meaning perhaps I don't know three or four um, it's a it's a kind of a, a somewhat uh, dissolving or breaking down process, you know, that these old ways have to dissolve to make room for this new vision. But in the best case scenario, if if enough of us wake up enough to do the inner and outer work that's required, like to connect with our truer nature, truest nature, our true nature, I mean, um, and apply that, because it's by no means just about individual waking up. That's almost like just the starting point in a way it's like getting your car ready to take on the road but it's really the trip on the road that we're you know focused on not just getting the car repaired and working you know so um mm-hmm. uh, if if we do our work properly if enough of us focus if enough of us get the message that this way that we are running the world now is not sustainable um, and it's going to take an inner transformation as well as outer material transformations to make that kind of a change. Uh, Duane and Chris Bage talks about this too from his visions um, and others. Um, it envisioned perhaps in five, six, seven decades from now, but who knows really, the possibility of, again, as you said, a, a mature, the, the birth or the arise, arise, arising of a a mature planetary civilization. So 
I mean, I don't know, you know, in 25 words or less, so to speak, how I could, uh, you know, describe that accurately if I even understand it or remember what was in Dwayne's chapter, but it would look perhaps something like um, the awakened state that I referred to earlier, that we are at peace with ourselves. Um, And when we are at peace with ourselves, um, love flows, creativity flows, intelligence flows, we do the things that we need to do individually and collectively. Um, that's our promise. Um, and, and as far as I'm concerned, um, that is uh, the only, in a sense, vision worth holding at this point in our history, mm-hmm. that, mm-hmm. Uh, that we have, that we are going through a massive change and, 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 and in many ways a breakdown that was predicted and inevitable and, and is needed for a new way to be born, uh, you know, for individuals and the species and the planet altogether, um, but that it is doable, it's possible. And any other attitude, regardless of how logical it seems, is dysfunctional, both for oneself and for the collective. I mentioned in my introduction in the book that um, what we feel and think individually now probably matters more than it ever did because we're actually putting energy into the field, as it were. Bruce Damer in the book talks about the field, the probabilities of the field. Um, we all influence it, even if it's a tiny degree, like voting, you know. <laughs> um, yeah. And so the more people can get the message, um, not fall into despair, cynicism, and depression, or not dwell there or find their way out of those states at least as much as possible and um, do the healing work that that needs to be done um, to uh, help us uh, relax into the awakened state to the greatest degree possible and hopefully out of that will eventually come a mature planetary civilization. Probably not in the lifetime of most people on the planet now. Um, certainly right. those in the latter half of their lives. But that's the point. It's it's now it's bodhisattva work. It's you know altruism. It's commitment. You know working for working for the peace and the benefit of the future generations. Yeah. Well, and and um, I don't know. Maybe a, even a, a really quick way to say it is you know everybody works um, in partnership. Uh, and has that as their goal rather than the domination uh, and predation that uh, you know that exists today. You know, absolutely. Um, yeah. Well, well, Stephen, um, I think that's a good high note to leave things on. Um, uh, I, I'll give you the last word, though. Uh, is there anything you want to add that we haven't had time to chat about? I, I know we could go on for a few hours here, but we can't. Um, which, which your final uh, word of farewell? Hmm. Well, um, I, I think that last little uh, monologue or ramble, you know, pretty much, you know, summed up the best that I can come up with. Uh, so maybe just to sort of summarize that in even fewer words, that um, we are going through a change um, of great dimensions. Uh, it, it could be very disturbing for a lot of people, if, especially in particular if material conditions become tougher, which is very possible. Um, uh, but that the dysfunctional attitudes or mind states that have tended to dominate the planet need to fall away for there to be room for this new way of being. It's ancient, it's, 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 in a sense, it's universal, it's timeless, it's eternal, but it's also 
uh, new, it would be new as a way of living on the planet collectively, um, that it's possible, and we need to keep that in mind. Um, hopefully people can remember that, have some tentative trust in the awakened state and the potential for humanity and what my old Buddhist teacher called basic goodness at the core of everything underneath all the turmoil. So it's, I just mm-hmm. wanted, I, I would say, just I would like to, if anything, offer uh, a message of um, hope and possibility. Okay. Um, and um, where can people find your book? Uh, well, it should be available at all the standard kind of places like more bricks and mortar stores, you know, cha- uh, chains like Barnes and Nobles and all that. It's also available on Amazon and other online booksellers. Um, <clears throat> they could go to my website, and that shows uh, that has the links to a number of those sources. They put the publisher itself, of course, Inner Traditions. Uh, InnerTraditions.com has it. My website is stephengrayvision.com, S-T-E-P-H-E-N-G-R-A-Y, vision.com. I'm also on Facebook as Stephen Gray Vision. Um, Stephen Gray is mushed together into one word in that case. And on Instagram and TikTok now, just learned that one. Um, uh, So there's lots of ways to find the book. Um, I have a newsletter. If uh, people contact me through one of those media um, I'd be happy to um, add their names to my newsletter. I use it very sparingly and respectfully, um, and there are no ads or any of that nonsense. Um, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, uh, and yeah, so there are ways to contact me um, that are relatively okay. accessible, and yeah, happy to hear from people that way. Well, good. Um, thank you, Stephen. Uh, it's been an interesting uh, interview. Uh, I think we went in places that uh, neither of us probably expected to go, but I think it was great. Um, so, uh, listeners, uh, for the title of Stephen's book, again, uh, it's an anthology, uh, How Psychedelics Can Help Save the World. Uh, Stephen, thank you for the book. Thank you for being on the show. And, um, you know, uh, maybe we'll come back and talk about some of the other stuff that uh, we didn't get to today. Yeah, there's actually a lot that we didn't get to, but I th- I'm hoping that we covered <laughs> the central issues anyway. And uh, I thank you for your interest in all this and uh, for your, um, you know, appropriate questions and uh, your um, excellent listening skills. Okay. Well, thank you so much. Uh, you you uh, you know you have a good uh, good safe life out there, and um, you know good luck with your book. I hope it's a big success. Well, thank you very much. Okay, bye-bye, Stephen. Well, um, I have a few uh, things I want to share with listeners before we go. Um, We ran a little bit long today, and I could have talked to Stephen for another, at least another hour, uh, but maybe we'll have him back uh, in a few weeks and get to some of the stuff we didn't get to today. Um, But uh, just some headlines uh, I want to share with you. Uh, You may or may not have seen or heard that uh, Pope Francis uh, is calling on the world to decriminalize homosexuality despite some of his bishops uh, not being real happy about it um, 
you know, it, it may still be a sin, but uh, he doesn't want people prosecuted uh, for being gay. So, you know, it's not everything we'd like, but uh, it's something. And uh, for the cat lovers out there, uh, the Miami Herald had an article out there that uh, there's a rare Anatolian leopard species uh, that's been found in the mountains of Turkey. Uh, and uh, this species of leopard had been extinct for 40 Five years uh, now it's been caught on film and the other cat story uh, is the Wildlife Conservation Society put out a news release uh, that uh, their team of scientists who were um, exploring around the Mount Everest area have found uh, that the palace cat p-a-l-l-a-s uh, this rare cat is actually um, now living in the Mount Everest area, uh, which is a new development. And uh, fortunately, it is uh, considered a protective species. And I couldn't uh, help think, as I read these two articles about the rare Anatolian leopard and the palace cat uh, making their comeback, uh, they remind me of the tenacity of Sepmet and also the lions at the sides of uh, Quebec. Uh, when you see her sitting on her throne in Turkey. Um, anyway, uh, just a little bit food for thought and some headlines there. Um, one of my listeners, uh, Pat, my roving reporter, uh, sent in this uh, quick little uh, I guess it's a Hellenistic prayer to Athena. And uh, I wanted to just share it with you today. Uh, it goes like this. Where there is hate and the anger of men, I bring the light of concord. Where there is strife and the sounds of war, I bring the hope of peace. Where there is ignorance and the ravings of madmen, I bring the divinity and grace of wisdom. Where you are, I walk with you, for I am Athena. Thank you for that, Pat. And uh, let's see, uh, next week, uh, February 8th, uh, my guest is Carolyn Boyd. We're going to be discussing hospitality of goddess culture as a tool for healing. Um, I'm really interested to know what, uh, what that looks like, what is hospitality in goddess culture. Uh, then on the 15th, the day after Valentine's Day, uh, Beth Bartlett is with me discussing restoring sisterhood. Uh, which we know can be fraught with peril. If you've ever read um, uh, Phyllis Chesler's Woman's Inhumanity to Woman. And then uh, February 22nd, Emmanuel Etier is uh, back on the show. He's a producer of a legacy of uh, great films to help change the consciousness of humanity. We're going to be talking about those films he's produced and uh, uh, because it is his hope that uh, new information like that getting out to the public uh, kind of counters the conditioning uh, that uh, so many people have had um, because he believes in oneness, uh, let's, uh, let us all heal the world. Uh, so that about does it for me for today. I hope you enjoyed this show. Uh, please tell your friends uh, and share the word. Karen Tate is back, and her work is where spirituality, uh, personal transformation, and social justice meet. That seemed kind of weird. I was talking about myself in the third person. 
Um, also, uh, if you're interested in my newsletter, it comes out once a month, uh, usually around the first of the month, and uh, I share a lot of interesting things on it that I don't get to um, talk to you about often on my Facebook page or um, on the show. So if you'd like to be added to that newsletter, uh, you'll maybe get some information that you can't get anywhere else. Um, if you do want to see me on Facebook, uh, go to Voices of the Sacred Feminine Radio. Uh, that is going to be my only page pretty soon now, and that's where you'll have to follow me, and there will be a lot of information there besides radio show information. And um, please check out my new website. Uh, I have to say, uh, the woman who did this, I don't know if I'm allowed to say her name, so I won't, uh, I won't drop that here, but I love my new website. Uh, it's karentate.net. Uh, it, it, we are in the process of adding new information there all the time. Uh, some new stuff just got posted yesterday. Uh, please go check it out. Um, I'm in love with it. I love the color palette. Uh, I chose that color palette because they're the colors of ancient Egypt. Um, so please go take a look and uh, leave me a comment. And um, I, uh, I guess that's about it. Uh, I will close with uh, Sekhmet's Sacred Roar here. Take a listen. I think. Hang on. That's not very loud, is it? There we go. So if you've never heard an actual leopard or lion roar, that was one. Uh, And I like to tell folks, find your sacred roar. Find your authenticity. Um, uh, And uh, I guess on to Our Lady of Strength, Healing, and Tenacity, Sepmet, the lion-headed Egyptian goddess. um, Help us all find our sacred roar and the lioness within. Until next week, dear listeners, uh, be safe, be happy, find your joy and creativity, and uh, may Isis bless you and embrace you in her golden wings. Bye for now.